now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In episode four of our human trafficking research season, Just Science sat down with Christina Melander, a research public health analyst at RT International, to discuss the ongoing role of human trafficking survivors and guiding systems professionals. Human trafficking systems professionals, such as researchers and policymakers, may value the opinions of those with formal academic credentials. However, real human trafficking survivors possess the experience to contribute meaningful expert information as well. Engaging in these conversations may be mutually beneficial for survivors by providing an avenue for healing, leadership, and professional growth. Listen along as Christina discusses the ongoing effort to involve human trafficking survivors in research, the ethical challenges of survivor engagement, and her current research projects involving vulnerable populations. This episode is funded by RTI International's Justice Practice Area. Some content in this podcast may be considered sensitive and may evoke emotional responses or may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Here are your hosts, Jacqueline Colnett and Hannah Feeney. Hello, and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Jacqueline Colnett. On today's episode, I'm joined by a guest co-host, Hannah Feeney. Welcome, Hannah. Hi, Jacqueline. Thanks so much. Uh, Today, we're going to be discussing engaging survivors within the context of human trafficking. Here to discuss this is Christina Melander. Welcome, Christina. Thank you for talking with us today. Hey there. Thanks for having me. So, Christina, I'd love to kick us off by starting talking about you. Who are you and what's your background? Um, So I'm a community practice social worker and a researcher. And I got into this field rather, I think, kind of on accident. I really started out doing direct services, worked at a woman's homeless shelter as a sexual assault advocate, domestic violence advocate, youth violence prevention educator. And then all of that led me to the issue of human trafficking, which often I think is intersecting with gender-based violence, homelessness, and substance use. Right after grad school, I was working with Dr. Lauren Martin at the University of Minnesota, and she mentored me in community-based participatory research, also sometimes known as participatory action research or action research, goes by a lot of different names. And uh, through my work with Dr. Martin and now at RTI, I specialize in participatory research methods and survivor engagement. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today, Christina. I feel like your wealth of experience, both in direct services and then learning and applying that to your research is just such an important lens for us to be talking about and to be talking specifically on this podcast and in this series. So um, before we get started, I'd love to know, how do you define survivors in your work? I think that's a really great question because there's a lot of different terms and words that are out there that we use to either talk about or write about people who have experienced some type of victimization, exploitation, or violence. Um, Sometimes we say victim, and that might be a helpful word to acknowledge that a harm or a crime has been committed against somebody and it's not their fault. And sometimes the language of victim doesn't feel good for the people that have these experiences because they don't wanna wrap their identity around a painful or a traumatic point in time. Uh, That's why the word or language survivor can be so empowering because it's honoring the resilience and agency of moving through a traumatic experience to a place of healing. And I also want to acknowledge that there's people who don't want to use either word. 
This is because they don't want to wrap their identity around being either a victim or a survivor. And so person first language can be really helpful here. For example, you might just say a person with lived experience. And I think in, in my work and in others work, just no matter what language you use, it's really important to honor, respect and mirror the language that people use for themselves. So just like listening to the words that people use or asking them, like, what are the terms that you'd like me to use when we're talking about this issue or we're talking about your experiences and then continuing to use that language going forward. I really appreciate you sharing that context and nuance for the language that we're going to be using today. So let's talk about engaging folks who have lived experience of human trafficking. Let's talk about survivor engagement. What does that mean to you and why would you want to engage survivors in this work? Yeah, survivor engagement is, I see it as the process of a meaningful involvement of people who have lived experience to inform, guide, develop, or direct any type of policies, procedures, practices, or research. So that's whether you're a policymaker or doing policy advocacy work, you're a program administrator, a researcher, or any other professional who is involved in some type of development or implementation of a, of a system. We all want these systems to be effective and to reduce or prevent harm and to promote healing and justice. And without survivor engagement, it's sometimes unclear if we're accomplishing these ends. So survivor engagement helps ensure that the strategies and approaches we use are respectful, inclusive, and targeted to the realities and needs of people who have lived experience. I really love how you outlined multiple ways in which people can engage in all parts of the process, right? That essentially this can be infused and work holistically. I think a question that comes to mind for me is what does this look like and what does it look like in a meaningful way to be done very thoughtfully? So what could it look like and how would you advise people to do this in, in really a meaningful and thoughtful way? You know, most of my work is through the lens of research. So I want to make sure I'm talking about that lens and then also kind of talking about it from like a bigger, broader perspective, too. And from the research lens, it can look like the creation of an advisory group or advisory council uh, or even like hiring survivors as paid research assistants or working on your research team. That type of involvement that happens at multiple points in time throughout a process, that's not just a one-time consultation and saying, we checked the box, we talked with some survivors, but it's really giving an opportunity for uh, people who have lived experience to share and contribute at multiple points of time throughout the life cycle of a project. But from kind of a bigger, broader bird's eye view, not just research, survivor engagement, it can happen in any kind of type of public engagement. So I mentioned advisory groups or councils it can also happen through like a town hall or a forum, a round table, a workshop, a survey or feedback forms, or you can even get creative and, and do like social media and have some kind of interactive features. But the thing that I want to kind of come back to again is that survivor engagement is not a one-time event. It's something that happens in an ongoing way. And I think the key distinction here is, is the engagement that you're setting up, does it make it possible for their voice to make a difference? Did their feedback that they give you actually influence whatever it is you're doing? Did it actually change or influence the research you're doing? Did it change or influence the policy or the program that you're working on? And if it didn't, if it was just there to check a box, then that's not 
meaningful engagement. But if it actually is able to inform and develop, course correct, that's the kind of work that, that I'm talking about and that I'm passionate about. That's really helpful, Christina, to kind of get a bird's eye view of what survivor engagement could look like. And I want to do a deeper dive on the ways to do this successfully, different challenges. But before we get into that, I would like to hear a little bit more about why it is so critical to bring survivors into these spaces. Yeah, I really appreciate that question, Hannah, because we have to understand this kind of from like a, a value based, you know, the, understand the principles that motivate this work in the first place. Survivors or people who have lived experience really have knowledge, wisdom, perspective, proximity to the issues that are vital to whatever you know research policy system that are impacting their lives. So again, from my perspective in research projects, that expert knowledge of the issues can improve the quality and the validity of the methods. In something more like policy work, it's trying to ensure that the policy's intended benefits are matching the needs of the community. And it's also about minimizing unintended consequences. And then in programs or systems administration, it's about improving the efficacy and the success of the program's protocols or practices. But I I think going back to that concept around like the principles and the values of survivor engagement, I really just think it's the right thing to do. Survivors need a voice and a platform to be able to contribute to the things that are impacting their lives. They need a seat at the table and uh, they need opportunities for professional development and need opportunities to lead. And I know from some of my own work even that survivors have talked about how this can be part of their healing as well, right? To be a part of working to change systems or inform projects that are meant to actually lead to a policy change or a deeper understanding of how services can better support survivors, that that can also be a really meaningful um, part of their own journey and healing. And I think, Christina, that last point you made about professional development and opportunities to lead is so key, that robust engagement really means centering victims' experiences and voices and ensuring that you know we're informed and that they're included in shaping these things that are meant to impact others like them or even directly themselves. Just to build off what you're talking about, like opportunities to lead and how this can be a meaningful opportunity, I think it's really important to recognize sometimes biases that systems professionals have for honoring or recognizing only people that maybe have like credentials or certain types of experience or expertise. And survivor engagement is really about trying to recognize and honor their experience as a form of expertise and treating it in that way. This is such an important conversation and one that I feel like comes up quite frequently. One way that I've thought about this before is that we know that individuals who work on research projects often have lived experience of different types of victimization as well. But I like to think of survivor engagement as an intentional approach to center the voice of individuals who have experienced violence. So those who are working on research projects often have competing interests. Maybe they do have survivors' best interest in mind, but they might also be interested in pursuing different components of their project or centering other components of the project, right? So, so important to bring this perspective into it as well. Yeah. And there's, to that to that point, Hannah, there's like a, a public benefit from having survivors involved, especially when it's like a kind of a broader external group. 
I mean, we all know this, the trope of like a research sitting on the shelf in the binder that nobody's opening back up again, but having people who are in the community living their lives who are not necessarily researchers also seeing the work that you're doing and, you know, seeing how the, the cookies made, oh, how the sausage is made, yeah. how the sausage is made, who are taking a part in how the sausage is made are going to have a different perspective that's going to say, and I'm going to help you get that sausage to the deli counter or something like that, because <laughs> they are have a, a different investment than researchers typically do. And so I think that's a really important perspective and point to bring up too. And I think having survivor voice and dissemination too is so important. And considering, like you had mentioned, of opportunities to lead, but I also think opportunities to publish, right? To be co-authors. I think that's what we were talking about earlier of making sure that it's from start to finish, which includes dissemination and publication. Something that's coming to mind though, as we talk is what does compensation look like? And Christina, you mentioned like expertise and that they're they're lending their expertise at the table. So can you speak a little bit to what you would ask people to consider with survivor engagement and compensation? I think one way that I might want to um, answer this question is by bringing in this framework called the, the four R's. It's looking at risk, reward, resources, and responsibility and the distribution of those between all the stakeholders who are involved in a research project. So thinking about how are risks, and we'll talk probably more about this because this is a, a bigger topic, how are risks shared across the people involved in a project? How are they shared between the researchers um, or administrators and survivors? Rewards, I mean, that's something about compensation. So people who are involved and being engaged in this way should be compensated for their time and compensated for their expertise. And ideally that shouldn't be just like a, a small amount of money, but it should be like a real kind of substantial, you know, consultant fee or a real type of comparable wage to a non-survivor as well. So I think paid positions is critical. And the other points around responsibility and resources. So resource distribution, that's thinking like, um, how are you sharing the gifts and the tools and the knowledge that you have? Those are resources. How are you sharing those across your team? So are you making sure that survivors have access to some of those resources as well by demystifying the research process, by providing education to them on the different parts of how you're doing research? using that sausage, how the sausage is made, idiom again. And then responsibility, that's like, who has responsibility for getting things done? And also for responsibility for taking action. And those are just an important framework to think about for any type of research or survivor engagement. Absolutely. And responsibility, I think, ties into something you had said earlier around like advisory boards or roundtables, being clear also about what is the level of engagement or decision-making? Like being very clear on who has responsibility for different aspects of this work. If it's an advisory board, right? That usually and typically doesn't have decision-making authority on what finally happens. And I think that's another really important piece. And maybe that fits in responsibility. I'd, I'd lend that to your expertise, Christina, if it does. But I feel like sometimes that gets missed in some of the work is being really clear around the confines of engagement, because right for some state entities who are engaging survivors in this work, they might have limitations to how much someone can make a decision, right? It ultimately is not in the hands of that advisory group because there's 
different processes that they have to navigate through. And I think that's another really important note to make that it's important to be clear about the confines of where decision-making lies in that responsibility piece. I am really glad you brought that up. I think that is a real important point and can be a real sticky point in a lot of different uh, engaged research projects is how much decision-making power do survivors have? At the end of the day, if your client is saying, you know, this is this is what it is. This is what we want. And we're, we're not moving. You know, that's a real challenging place to be in. If, for example, your survivor advisory board would say no to that, you know, those are our real challenging situations, but to try to get ahead of any kind of conflict, it is really important to set up clear expectations around decision-making around the parameters of the project and inviting people into that space so they are fully aware of what those parameters are. And I'd also say, I think it's the role of a, of a researcher in being a facilitator of these processes to also be an advocate for the survivors in those spaces. And so if there is any type of big conflict between, for example, a client and the survivors, like I would really want to know why, and I would really want to advocate on their behalf for the client to budge for whatever that was in this you know, hypothetical situation. So clear expectations, but also keeping in mind that the researcher is a facilitator, convener, and kind of an advocate in some of these spaces. So Christina, you're sharing a lot of great insight, and I'm wondering if you have any examples of projects where you think survivor engagement has been done successfully. Yeah. Recently at RTI, concluded a participatory action research project. Uh, it was led by a local nonprofit in Sacramento called Communities Against Sexual Harm, or CISH. They also go by CASH. And CASH was tasked with developing a prevalence estimate of sex trafficking in Sacramento County. They used two different methods. They were using a multi-systems estimation, and then they were also using a respondent-driven sampling method and the respondent-driven sampling portion of the study, Cash Community Survivor Advisory Council. And this group of survivors, they were involved from the very beginning, you know, and all the way through past the end. I think they're actually still meeting after this research project has concluded, but they co-developed the interview instruments. They developed the outreach methods that were used in the study. Some of the advisory council members, if they wanted to, they were given the option to work as field outreach workers to recruit for the, the study and also to do interviews. And they're provided training for all of these things so that they were equipped with the resources and skills to do that. And all of these are paid positions as well. The council also helped review the data with interpreting the data analysis and giving direction on the final report. And then they also wrote their own action research brief about one of the findings that was really important to them in particular. And I think this group was really just instrumental in ensuring that the data collection instruments used language and terms that would be understood by people who are being trafficked and were also respectful and trauma-informed. Their insights were really critical in having a successful outreach strategy that was able to identify over 100 people who were being trafficked in Sacramento County for these interviews. So I think that really speaks to the success in quality research methods that 
comes from this type of engagement as well as actionable findings. Absolutely. Christina, I'd love to talk more and dive a little bit deeper into this specific study and explore, you know, what were some of those ethical challenges that come up from doing this work that um, perhaps came up on this cash project in particular? With this project, and this is also true with any kind of research project working on human trafficking, there's the real potential for re-traumatization or just, you know, an emotionally adverse experience for survivors. You know, the content is, as we all know, has violence, exploitation, abuse, things that are really hard to listen to and really hard if you had these experiences to sometimes engage with or, or listen to as well. And it's just so critical in, you know, the cash project to make sure that the way that they were setting up the survivor engagement really avoided any type of re-traumatization and also had a plan for like what to happen if somebody did have an experience of being triggered or just being really emotionally upset. You know, I think it's important to recognize everybody is going to have their own unique reaction to different types of content because everybody's trauma is unique and their emotional capacity is unique. Uh, But the most important thing that the facilitator of these groups can do is just to try to minimize that impact and to do things to ensure that the people who are participating have clear expectations of the kind of material that they're going to be reviewing or talking about the kinds of conversations they're going to be having and that the participants feel emotionally ready to have that. So you brought up clear expectations earlier. This is another place where you can be really clear with people about the kind of work that they're going to be doing and and seeing if they are feel ready to do that. You can also do that in like an inclusion criteria. Like who who are you going to have or invite to the table to participate in this group? Cash's Survivor Advisory Council was convened by the practitioners who work at Cash. They have relationships with survivors. And so they had a really good sense and were able to have really clear and honest conversations with people to see if they felt emotionally ready to participate. And that was something that they did very successfully to reduce that um, potential for re-traumatization. And another thing they did is that they built in aftercare strategies. So they're able to end meetings and have debriefing and time to just unwind, kind of let it all go, encourage people to have journaling practices. And Cash also offered up their uh, in-house therapist to any of the participants if they wanted to have a different type of debriefing experience. I feel like what you're describing, Christina, should just be best practices for victimization and trauma research in general and is so important in our conversation today. It really just resonates in my work in research that this happens on projects across the board for our staff that are working on these projects, um, whether they be survivors or non-survivors. So I really appreciate you highlighting Uh, the importance of these processes and really thoughtful pre-work to be done and how things are structured. Christina, I'm wondering if you have any examples of successful meeting facilitation strategies when engaging with survivors in this capacity. 
I think the most important thing to keep in mind is that a successful meeting is going to happen when people have you know, those clear expectations. They understand and they feel part of a group. So there's a lot of trust. Oftentimes when I've done these types of groups, I spend a lot of time in relationship building. So that's like icebreakers, chit chat, like building an extra time of the agenda that is fairly unstructured just to get to know each other or to just catch up and and talk about what's going on in life. I've had the pleasure of working with you, Christina, and I know that one thing you're great at is setting group norms or guidelines or co-developing group guidelines before these types of meetings. Do you have any examples of what those guidelines might look like for survivor engagement activities? Uh, Usually the first one is confidentiality talking about what is confidential, maybe what might not be. So if you're talking about, you know, reviewing in a survey or an interview guide, you might say your feedback is stuff that we want to share with our whole research team. But if you share anything personal, that's something that is confidential. We want to, what's shared in the room stays in the room, those kinds of things. I think it's also really important to let people know that you're not there just to ask them about their trauma or for them just to talk about it. So having a conversation or a norm around that expectation that they don't need to share their experience. They're there because they're an expert and they don't need to talk about what happened to them um, in order to have a meaningful engagement with your project. But also being prepared if somebody does disclose or does want to share that there are group norms around supporting and validating that. So if somebody does share something hard that You as a facilitator and the group can have a supportive environment to thank that person for sharing. I heard you allude to before even having upfront conversations about what types of language will be used during that meeting and ways to be respectful of other individuals' experiences in the room, even if it differs from their own. And that seems like a important and meaningful part of that engagement as well. Absolutely. It's you know important when you start this type of engagement. If you're meeting with people on a regular basis, you know, that's a good way to start is by talking about terms and language, talking about norms, confidentiality, and then it's also important to revisit those things. So that shouldn't be a one-time conversation, but it's something you think about informed consent, you think about, you know, a trauma-informed approach. All of those things are, can be incorporated into the way that you facilitate and structure a meeting. There's a great model out of UCSF Trauma Recovery Center there, and they have had a speakers bureau for years. But a while back, I learned about their story building structure that they use and with survivors and, and help for individuals to be able to share their narrative. I think that's really important. And when we're doing more public speaking events or otherwise, some of that pre-work can be really helpful for survivors to figure out how to share their story in a way that feels good and comfortable for them. I think sometimes with engagement, people can want a lot of details. And that's not always appropriate. If someone wants to share those details, that is obviously like their choice and their decision. But uh, they have this story building structure that's headline. So this is what happened with not needing to share a lot of those details, the impact, recovery, and now. So it provides this story building structure where someone can share their story in the way that they feel comfortable, but also focuses on headlines, not details. And I think part of where that came up for me is the re-traumatization, also being mindful of how we share our stories, right? That someone 
could be triggered by our stories if there's detail. And so how do we be mindful in the space of setting those norms around we speak in headlines, we focus on on these pieces and, and not to edit anyone's story by any means, but in order to establish those group norms for the collective whole to not experience that and reduce the p- impact of uh, re-traumatization potentially. I really appreciate that example, Jacqueline. And I think that's just another type of engagement you're talking about that I really appreciate, you know, is that I'm talking a lot about these research spaces and advisory councils and groups that might be meeting regularly and having all this kind of trust that they're building together. But you're talking about a different model. And I think it's really important to bring that model up. And that's something where that engagement is kind of an open forum. And there can be a really important and valid place for survivors to just tell their story and for people to hear that. And then for there to be those parameters and kind of emotional safety buffers that you're putting in around that process. Because I think that strategy is often used in policy work. And while, you know, I think all of us would advocate that there be more engagement than just one forum and open meeting, I think if that is to be done, um, we know that will probably still happen. I would encourage people to think about that pre-work and then also for what is uh, meaningful engagement, like you talked about earlier, in the entirety of that meeting and not just in the moment to share their story. And what resources might be provided to people after. So there's the pre-work that you might be doing to getting people prepared, but then somebody's done sharing. Did they know the outcome of what happened from their sharing? Did they get to learn about the you know, whatever next step happens after, whether that's a public forum or town hall or whatever that engagement is, is there a way to share back some of those outcomes with those people to stay connected with them? That's kind of the longer term. And then maybe even in the immediate, that might be an emotional process to to share. Is there somebody there who maybe is just a support person uh, or an advocate to connect with? Sometimes in some of the work that I've done, we've actually connected with local sexual assault or human trafficking nonprofits to have an advocate there on site if somebody just wants a support person to to talk with. So Christina, are there any other challenges that come to mind when you're engaging in this type of work? I would just say that it's really important, maybe it's not a challenge, but a consideration to think about an inclusive and diverse engagement uh, with people who have lived experience. So depending on how you're connecting or advertising or recruiting these opportunities, it's important to think about, is that recruitment or invitation reflecting the full lived experience of the population that you're engaging with? For example, really doing some inclusive outreach to try to engage men and boys, to try to engage the LGBTQ community, to be really inclusive for people who have disabilities, for making sure you have, you know, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color. So just thinking about being inclusive in that engagement so that you're getting a really diverse group of people. That's so important. And one group that often, when we talk trafficking, some people uh, may only think sex trafficking, right? That's much more prevalent in, in our media and in our conversations, but also being sure, right, that we have labor trafficking represented if we're really focused more broadly on trafficking in general, And if the group is specific to labor or sex trafficking, right, then that should be appropriate to who you're trying to hire or have as consultants who are survivors based off of that. Exactly. 
And sometimes depending on your budget or the structure of this engagement, it can be really important to be thinking really critically about how to make sure from, from the beginning, from that planning phase that you have that diversity and what that group size might need to look like or the best forum or venues to get that and then work that into your budget. I think sometimes this type of engagement gets planned as an afterthought and doesn't get enough time spent on it or doesn't get enough money spent on it because it's done kind of after all the other research stuff gets planned. So I would encourage people to put it in the, the forefront of their thought. That's such a great recommendation. And for somebody who is just starting to do this kind of work, what are some good thoughts for them to keep in mind? I think first and foremost, it's important to have that trauma-informed lens um, and to be thinking about the influence or the the impact of trauma and how they want to be really mindful of doing this work to be sensitive to that. And that means having trust and rapport with people, with survivors. So if you are just getting started in this work, I would think about like, who are the partners in your community that could help you. So look to the practitioners who have those relationships, who have that from informed lens, who you can lean on to help you do this work. They're going to be really great allies and resources. As we wrap up today, Christina, what do you hope folks take away from this podcast? I just want to reiterate that it's really important to to do this type of survivor engagement because survivors need a voice. They need a seat at the table. They need to be able to contribute to the things that are impacting their lives. Perhaps some of the methods that we've talked about today might seem a little daunting or seem like it requires so much planning um, and expertise to do it well. But I would just encourage you, if you haven't done this before and you are in a profession or position where your work is impacting survivors of human trafficking, that it's better just to get started on something rather than nothing. So you might make mistakes on the way. We can all learn from those mistakes and grow and get better. But just again, I'd encourage people to reach out to local practitioners to help them get started reach out to other mentors to help them get started. And just to remember that this is, it's really important for survivors to have a seat at the table. Christina, it has been an absolute pleasure discussing survivor engagement with you today. Thank you so much for taking this time to talk with us. Thank you for asking such wonderful questions and for having me today. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and additional resources, you can find some great links on the landing page for this episode. I'm Jacqueline Kolnick. And I'm Hannah Feeney. And this has been another episode of Just Science. This concludes our human trafficking research season. Tune in for the next episode of Just Science, where we will cover the public's perceptions of medical legal death investigation. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.